What happens to survivors and victims' families after a mass shooting? It's an introduction. You know, mass shooting grief 101. Meet Sandy and Lonnie Phillips. Since their daughter was murdered nearly seven years ago, they've shown up at most of the major mass shootings, offering those in need a kind of survival guide to a grief few can imagine. I lost a brother to suicide, and a lot of people say, you're now part of a group mm -hmm. which you never wish you would be right. part of. We do care about these people. We want to help them find their purpose and find their strength so that they can live their new normal. Our adventure led us high above the Arctic Circle to find out why the Earth is warming so fast, so far below. How far below the surface are we right now? Uh, right now we're about 10 meters. So about 30 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We met a scientist who enjoys Russian vodka, smokes like a Soviet steel mill, and believes these massive bones exposed by warming could bring the extinct woolly mammoth back from the dead. That's amazing. I post, let's go. This college point guard isn't in this year's NCAA tournament, but he's one of the best Cinderella stories you'll ever hear. I wake up in my dorm and be like, I'm really in college right now. This is crazy. Crazy because when we first met Shy Quinn Dix a year ago, number 10 was number 391175 at a prison in Connecticut known as The Rock. His story and the radical program that hopes to rehabilitate prisoners and give them a shot at success tonight. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. In just the past two weeks, there have been three deaths by suicide of people who, in different ways, survived mass shootings. Two were teenagers who lived through the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida last year. The third was the father of a six-year-old girl murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. Sandy and Lonnie Phillips know firsthand that kind of grief. Their daughter was killed nearly seven years ago in a mass shooting. Since then, they've made it their mission to help others navigate the public and sometimes political aftermath of these tragedies. They travel the country hoping to build a network of survivors and offer victims and families a kind of survival guide to grief, preparing them for a future few can imagine. Your identity has been stripped from you. 
you know, whether it's mother or daddy or father or sister or brother, I no longer have that title. I no longer have that relationship. And when it's violence, like, like ours was, that takes a long time to recover from. I think some people think that there's a timetable for grief. Oh, yeah. Do you get that? Oh, yeah. The five stages of grief, right? And you go through all five of them and you think, okay, now I'm done. And they don't tell you, oh, no, you get to start it all again. And they're out of sequence. A lot of survivors just don't know that, especially going into it. You might find that what you have done for the last 20 years of your life or 30 years of your life has absolutely no meaning to you anymore. And that was certainly the case for us. It wasn't long after their daughter's murder that Sandy and Lonnie Phillips quit their jobs. They've gotten rid of most of their belongings and rented out their house so they can travel around the country to mass shootings, hoping to meet survivors and offer help. The scene of a mass shooting is not an easy place to come to. It can be like walking into a stranger's funeral. We don't know each other yet, but we do now. But in grief, strangers can quickly become family. You got a second mom here. It's gonna be we saw the Phillipses in Thousand Oaks, California, where 12 people were gunned down at a country music bar last November. It is one of the latest stops on their heartbreaking journey. If you haven't lost somebody close to you, you can't comprehend it. Okay. Just days before they arrived here, they were in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were murdered at the Tree of Life Synagogue. It's so interesting, though, what you're doing. You're not trained therapists, you're not counselors, and yet you have upended your lives and reaching out in a very individual way to people. Yeah, that's compassion. That's what it is. Bottom line, it's about compassion. The compassion we get from those people, too. Yeah. It's not like it's a one-way deal. It was in 2012 that their daughter, Jessica Gowie, was murdered along with 11 others in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. She was 24 and an aspiring sports reporter. Can you take me back to that day? <sighs> yes. Um, the young man that was with her, Brent, was like a son to us. And she decided that she wanted to take him to see the Batman movie. And when the shooting happened, they stood up and never made it out. Both of them. Brent survived. He, he was shot um, trying to save her. He went into paramedic mode immediately because that's what he does for a living. And uh, the phone rang. He called you from inside the theater. Yeah. And I could hear the screaming going on in the background. And he said, uh, there's been a shooting. And I said, are you okay? And he said, I think I've been shot twice. And I knew then that, okay, something's bad. And I said, where's Jesse? And he said, I tried. And I said, is she okay? And he said, I did my best. I tried. And I said, oh, God, Brent, don't tell me she's dead. And he said, I'm really sorry. And I started screaming. And she was sliding down the wall screaming. And I grabbed her and picked her up, took her to the couch. And she kept yelling, Jesse's dead. It's been six years now, almost seven, and uh, there's not a day that goes by that we don't still get upset and still cry. 
I lost a brother to suicide, and a lot of people say, you know, this is, you're now part of a group mm -hmm. which you never wish you would be right. part of. And it's a lifetime membership, and the cost of the dues was way, way, way too high. Sandy is 68, Lonnie 75. Toward US 101, Los Angeles. They've been living mostly on savings, social security, and goodwill. I know that you're, you're on a deadline. Occasionally crashing with friends. How are you guys doing? Yeah. They started a nonprofit organization called Survivors Empowered to offer advice and kinship in the wake of mass shootings. I got a couple of recordings on this. But also to give families practical information, like how to deal with media attention or how to get a body home for a funeral. It's Lonnie, just checking in on you. There's things that happen to the families of people who've been shot in a mass killing that do not happen to families of somebody who has died under different circumstances. Exactly. The worst part is finding out that the day your child has been killed that there are already websites that have popped up and Facebook pages that have popped up saying this is a false flag and this didn't happen. Did you have people saying Jessica wasn't real? Oh yeah. She's a crisis actor. She yeah. wasn't real. She yeah. wasn't there. Yep. You didn't lose a daughter. All the time. You never saw your sister's dead body. Since Jessica's murder, Sandy's son, Jordan, has been harassed and threatened by a man who, like many conspiracy theorists, claims there was no massacre in Aurora. Your days are numbered, mother It's hard to imagine, but similar harassment now happens to families almost every time there's a mass shooting. That's the worst kind of harm you can do to someone, and you're a devastated parent, become, parent becoming more devastated. 315 and 314 for a shooting at Century Theaters. After the massacre in Aurora, Sandy and Lonnie, who are gun owners themselves, filed a lawsuit against companies that sold gear and ammunition to their daughter's killer over the Internet. The judge threw out the case and ordered them to pay more than $200,000 to cover defendants' legal fees. A contract with them consulting. They had to declare bankruptcy and now consult for a gun control group to make ends meet. Paying that forward right here. But they say they keep that work separate from their outreach to survivors. We don't ever bring up guns yeah. when we go. We never bring up politics or guns. Absolutely. We don't advocate. We don't recruit. We don't do any of that stuff until somebody shows an interest yeah. and, and we tell them, you know, you're not ready yet. The course of their new lives has followed a roadmap of American tragedies. They started in Newtown, then went to Isla Vista, San Bernardino, Orlando, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Parkland, Santa Fe, Pittsburgh, and Thousand Oaks. Each massacre is different, but the look Sandy and Lonnie see on the faces of those left behind is the same. You just can't believe it. No, it's, it can't be. You don't want to believe it. Annika and Mitch Dwaret's 17-year-old son Nicholas, who had just earned a swimming scholarship to college, was murdered with 16 others in Parkland, Florida, last year. I expect Nick to come home any day, or I walk through the house. Or he was yeah. such a great kid. Nick's younger brother, Alex, who was grazed by a bullet, doesn't talk much about what happened. He was in a classroom across the hall from Nick's when the shooting began. Their parents were nearby, waiting for school to let out. And then Alex called us and said, Mom, I'm in the back of an ambulance. I was hit in the back of the head. And in my mind, I didn't really worry about Nicholas because there's 3,500 at that school. One child was shot. What's the odds of two of my kids being shot? That 
and um, I took off to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mitch, you can wait for Nicholas. And, and I waited for Nicholas. Yeah. They waited for 12 hours before finally being told Nicholas was dead. Within days, a mutual friend connected them with Sandy and Lonnie Phillips. Do you remember that first meeting? Yeah, oh, of course. Of course, they had a house full of people. We felt a little bit like we were intruding on a very private moment, which we were, but for a good reason. I, I was a little skeptical in, in, in the beginning, and I'm thinking to myself, what do they want from us? Why are they here? After speaking to them, which to, we lasted for three hours. Three hours, that was three the first hours. night. Yeah. yeah. And they took the time just to, yeah. to be here and just went out here for any yeah. other reason but for you guys. Because you're in a place that's just not of this normal life. Yeah. yeah. You can't imagine. When you open your eyes in the morning, you're just like, why should I get up today? Why, why should I do that? And it's just so painful to feel this pain the whole day. Mm. And then to meet somebody who has been through this and six years later, and they are getting out of bed. You could look at Sandy and actually see a way through, potentially. Right. right. What are some of the things you, kind of the list of things you warn a grieving parent? The who, list is, I know you don't want to get out of bed right now, but you're going to live through this in spite of it. Just know that it's going to take you a long time. That's number one. Number two... People are ripping you off right now as we're speaking. There's probably a GoFundMe page somewhere and raising funds for the families, and that money goes into their bank account. You'll, you'll never see it. So be careful who you trust. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an introduction. You know, Mass Shooting Grief 101. To help them keep up, the Phillipses are trying to create a network of survivors who can quickly respond to mass shootings anywhere in the country. Volunteers like Shanna Caputo. She met Sandy and Lonnie in 2017 after surviving the massacre at a music festival in Las Vegas. When I first met them, I asked him if I could go to Parkland with them, because that was after Vegas. And she was like, no, honey, you're not ready for this yet. She's telling her story, and I'm listening to her, and I'm going, oh, my God. Shanna showed Sandy the cell phone video she unintentionally recorded of the shooting. And I'm watching the video and I'm going, this is triggering me. I can't imagine what she has really gone through. What was happening around you? People were going down right away. I could hear the bullets whizzing right past my head. You would just see them like jerk and I don't know if I can say this, but you would see them just explode. The gunfire lasted more than 10 minutes. 58 people were killed. For weeks afterward, Shanna says she was hardly able to leave her house. Sandy advised her to see a therapist who specializes in severe trauma. So after about four or five months of therapy, it was like a walnut and it cracked open. And I finally cried about it. And I called Sandy and I'm like, I cried. I was all excited. And I said, I'm actually very happy. Now you can begin to put things together and, and create the new you. And now she's doing incredible work. So this has been growing really ever since the shooting. Yeah. The work Shanna Caputo is doing started last fall after the bar shooting in Thousand Oaks, California, which is just miles from her house. She's now trying to help some of those survivors the way Sandy and Lonnie Phillips helped her. Wouldn't it be 
easier for you to not be immersed in the world of mass shootings. You are immersed in, are. in a very we, dark world. But we don't see it as dark. We, say, we see it as shedding a little light. We care about these people. We want to help them find their purpose and find their strength so that they can live their new normal. Temperatures in the Arctic continue to warm twice as fast as the rest of the world. That's according to the U.S. government's latest climate report. The past five years in the Arctic have been the warmest there since records began in 1900. Decades ago, an eccentric Russian geophysicist warned that frozen soil called permafrost contained enough greenhouse gas itself to pose a threat to the climate if it ever melted. Science scoffed at Sergei Zimov's warning, but now that the permafrost is collapsing, the world is listening. Recently, we traveled to the Siberian Arctic to meet Zimov, who has devised a scheme to save the world in a place that he named for the last ice age, Pleistocene Park. Our trip took three days, and our final leg in an adventure of geoscience was on an aeronautical fossil, a Soviet-era Antonov. We approached a Siberia we had never seen in our imaginations, a forest touching the horizon in a land sequined with lakes. This was far north even by a Siberian compass, above the Arctic Circle where the Kolyma River fills the East Siberian Sea. Fifteen time zones from New York, we found the aspiring ghost town of Chersky, a trading port in Soviet times, Chersky was gutted by the fall of communism, losing 80% of its residents. There's not much reason to visit, unless, like many scientists today, you're beating a path to the Northeast Scientific Station to meet its founder, 63-year-old Sergei Zimov. Hello. Hello. I'm Scott. I'm Sergei. Nice to see you, Sergei. He welcomed us in summer, when fireweed enjoys a few weeks of liberation. But 40 Siberian winters remained indelible on Zimov's face. The price of solitude for a geophysicist who longed to be remote from his communist bosses. When people hear the word Siberia, they think about exile, but it sounds to me like exile is exactly what you had in mind. Yes, only one problem, so long winter. The winter's long. Yes. Winters are long as ever, but not as cold. This ground was once so icy, humankind named it permafrost. But in the 1990s, Zimov noticed it wasn't so permanent. Frozen ground, do you hear? Yep. It's roof of permafrost. He can remember when his shovel wouldn't bite the frozen surface. But now he's down more than six feet. In the past, all our soil, which was melted in summer, freeze everywhere, totally, and it's happened usually in November, December. Now, in all winter, it did not freeze. What does that tell you? It means permafrost is melted. This is a warning to the world because organic matter in the permafrost, plants and animals, has been frozen for hundreds of thousands of years. As it thaws, microbes consume that organic matter and release carbon dioxide and methane. 
greenhouse gases, which contribute to a warmer climate. We just pulled this up out of the hole, and uh, it's burning my fingers, it's so cold. Yes, soil with water, and water is ice. In five minutes, it will be melt. Years ago, Zimov calculated there is enough carbon in permafrost to threaten the world. But big science gave that idea a cold shoulder, maybe in part because of Zimov himself. He endures Siberian winters when most Russians head south. He enjoys a refreshing vodka from time to time, smokes like a Soviet steel mill, and often just lies down to think. I sometimes describe him as somewhere between a madman and a genius. Max Holmes is a leading climate scientist and deputy director of the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. He told us Zimov's key discovery was that Siberian permafrost held far more carbon than anyone knew. When Zimov made this observation, he couldn't get his papers published in scientific journals. It can take a while to get um, papers published that fly in the face of conventional wisdom. But science warmed to Zimov's theory, and now he's published dozens of papers in science journals. Max Holmes has made several visits to Zimov's station. The estimates of how much carbon is locked up in permafrost keep going up, and most of us were probably thinking about the upper meter. The upper three the feet upper, or so yeah, of the, the soil. the upper three feet, that's right. If you go down much deeper than that, the carbon content's very low. But what's special about this area where Zimov is, the carbon content of the permafrost extends to much greater depths. So um, consequently, there's an awful lot of carbon that's locked up there. Scientists estimate there is more greenhouse gas in permafrost than in all of the world's remaining oil, natural gas, and coal. There's no consensus about how much of it could be released. How far below the surface are we right now? Uh, right now we are about 10 meters. So about 30 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten times deeper than originally thought, we found the remains of Ice Age plants and microbes. Let's see if we can take some samples. With Zimov's chief collaborator, his son, Nikita. It's a carbon bomb, as it's called. A carbon bomb? Yeah. Nikita Zimov grew up here with his father and sensibly moved south for college, leaving behind the old man in the river. But Nikita's plan to be a mathematician melted away when Sergei asked his son to return to see what he had seen. A few hours from the research station, there's a vast subsidence of permafrost, sort of a rolling landslide called Duvani Yar. Geology is a slow science, but here it's almost a spectator sport. The bones of extinct woolly mammoths are thawing after more than 12,000 years. The collapse of frozen earth is happening in much of the Arctic, including Alaska. 25% of the northern hemisphere is permafrost. The Zimovs have a theory, many would say a crazy idea, for diffusing the carbon bomb. They want to cool the permafrost by returning part of Siberia to the Ice Age, or at least what it looked like in those days, known as the Pleistocene era. If we were standing on this hill in the Pleistocene era, what would we see? No, any trees. It looks like grasslands and savanna, and 
you will see around 1,000 of mamas, around maybe 5,000 of bison, around maybe 10,000 of horses around this place, and also lions. Lions? Yes, there was main predator was lions here. Sergei Zimov told us when man became the main predator, the woolly mammoth and other large grazers were hunted to extinction. Forest replaced grasslands, and that made Siberia vulnerable to a warming climate because trees trap more heat than grass, and winter temperatures of 40 below can't freeze the permafrost if there are no herds of animals to trample the insulating snow. So this is what you use instead of a mammoth? Yeah. As a demonstration project they call Pleistocene Park, Nikita Zimov is knocking down trees over 54 square miles and restocking the big grazers. Zimovs believe returning the land to its Ice Age appearance will cool the permafrost even in a warming world. You're trying to bring the animals back now. How can you do that? Physically, I mean, or morally, what's, or financially? <laughs> All three, but let's start with physically. You need what? Hundreds of thousands, millions of these animals? Uh, you need to start with something. Second, uh, you need to prove people that the concept work. And to prove that concept work, you, for many things, you don't need millions of animals. You brought up the moral issue of bringing the animals in here. What do you mean by that? I mean, some people say you're playing God. Uh, you know, I think it's not me playing God. It was our ancestors who was playing God 15,000 years ago. Humans came and they dropped the number of animals worldwide. And we are just trying to you know, get it back. This is where the Zimov's experiment gets crazier. What they need is the greatest tree crusher of the last 20,000 years, and they are surrounded with evidence of the once abundant woolly mammoth. That's amazing. This it's young, young female. Young female mammoth. This weighs yes. at least 20, 25 pounds. Do you need the woolly mammoth to bring all of this back in the park? It's like, do you need your right arm to live and do your job? No, you don't need it, but with your arm, you will do it better. So same with mammoths. Today, one place you might get a woolly mammoth is in Boston, Massachusetts, specifically in the lab of Harvard geneticist George Church. Sergey is hoping that you're going to deliver a mammoth to him. Can you do that? I think he's hoping that we will deliver an animal that is very similar to the ones that used to roam there. We need cold-resistant elephants. That's what he would like. Church is another scientist who's made the trek to Zimov's world. He returned to his renowned genetics lab with DNA from mammoth bones. If you look at the 23 genomes of the, of the elephants, there's lots of evidence of lots of interbreeding all over the place among the different so-called species. So in a way, we're just recreating a hybrid that could easily have existed. When do you imagine you might be able to pull up a truck and deliver this creature to Pleistocene Park? I would say that probably in five years we'll know whether we can uh, get this to work for, for mice and, and maybe pigs and, and, and elephants. Uh, and then if we can get um, embryos to grow in the laboratory all the way to term, uh, then, um, then it's probably a decade 
The Zimovs have not convinced everyone in climate science. Critics say they lack long-term temperature records of the permafrost, and their work is restricted to a relatively small area. You know, to the untrained eye, someone could come away from a meeting with Sergei thinking that he's a crackpot. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, he, he kind of plays the part. But as a climate scientist, how do you evaluate him? I think he's usually right. Certainly, he has controversial ideas, um, and, and a lot of them, I think, end up being supported over time. What do you think of his concept of uh, Pleistocene Park? fascinating theory. Uh, I'm fascinated by the science that can be done to figure out if it's correct. I'm glad he's pursuing this. We need to think about solutions. The Zimovs have little funding for their big idea. The government donated the land and their income flows from the rent that they charge visiting scientists for the research station. Theirs is science on a shoestring with a very long timeline. Sergey, you've devoted your life to this, but I wonder why you thought it was important that Nikita devote his life to this. Why it's important? Mm. Our experiment, it's a long time experiment. Decades. Decades. It'll take decades. Yes. And it's also, you think about my grand-grandchildren. They have some intriguing results in the early days of Pleistocene Park. Data show the permafrost is becoming colder where heat-trapping trees have been cut down. It's a little more weight on the genius side of the madman scale, and perhaps early evidence that resurrecting the future of the world may depend on burying Siberia's past. One of the more radical attempts at prison reform is taking place in a foreboding Connecticut prison nicknamed The Rock. It's a two-year-old program based on therapy for 18 to 25-year-old prisoners whose brains, science shows, are still developing and their behavior more likely to change. The idea came from Germany, where the main objective of prison is rehabilitation and where the recidivism rate is about half that of the U.S., we were in Germany four years ago when then-Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy toured the prison system. He returned home inspired and launched the small German-style program at The Rock. It's too early to tell whether it will reduce recidivism, but we wanted to see how the German approach is being tested in America. So we went to Connecticut by way of a slight detour to the northeast corner of Maine. High post, let's go! The University of Maine at Presque Isle is small in the world of college basketball, but for number 10, Shai Quinn Dix, being a student athlete here is the biggest shot of his life. Being able to be around a place where I could just be me and like work with myself and live out my dream is like wonderful to me. I've heard that you're the best player on the team. I'm pretty good. I'm, uh... How about in the classroom? I actually made the Dean list, 3.8 this semester, all A's. It seems improbable. Like, I wake up in my dorm and be like, I'm really in college right now. This is crazy. Like, that's crazy. Crazy because when we first met him a year ago, Presque Isle number 10 
was inmate number 391175, serving a four-year sentence for felony check fraud at Cheshire Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in central Connecticut that houses about 1,300 prisoners. Warden Scott Urfey has spent 30 years working in the state prison system. He told us Cheshire Corrections officers were as firm and unyielding as the century-old prison walls. When you think of Alcatraz, old-school corrections, old-school mentality, uh, that is Cheshire. What gets you here to Cheshire? We have everybody from uh, short-termers to everything all the way up to and including uh, serial killer. There are some, some bad people here. The warden told us prisoners can be locked up 22 hours a day with just an hour of recreation in the morning and afternoon. So when former Governor Daniel Malloy asked him to build a program modeled on the prisons he'd toured in Germany, which are much more relaxed, focused on counseling and personal growth, Urfi told us he was dumbfounded. Did you think it was crazy? I thought it was a little bit crazy, but these individuals are going to be getting out. And they don't go to a special community just for ex-offenders. They're all around us. And would you rather have a better product coming out? Or would you rather have a worse product coming out and living next to you? So Warden Urfi got to work. He closed down a solitary confinement wing and opened up a sanctuary for self-improvement for about 50 young inmates whose crimes range from drugs to violent assault. They have to apply to get into the program called True for truthful, respectful, understanding, and elevating to success. This looks like a standard prison. Yes. What's going on here that I'm not seeing? You wouldn't have correctional officers playing board games with the inmates. That's just not done in general population. I mean, everybody here, you can tell, is just totally relaxed. Totally. Inmates turned one cell into a yoga studio, splashed with a colorful mural to set the mood. Prisoners and staff mingle freely. The prisoners are out of their cells from morning to night, their days filled with classes and counseling. We got to use the stuff that we've been through and the stuff that, or the pain, and we got to turn it to motivation. It's still prison, but the general atmosphere is lighter here. It can be head spinning for corrections officers originally trained to guard with an iron fist. Now they join prisoners in lip sync contests. This might seem frivolous, but it's a serious part of the true experiment. The goal? To rebuild these men with experiences, structure, and discipline they might not have had before. But the head of the Cheshire Corrections Officers Union told us True is turning prison into summer camp. They think it's too lenient. They think it puts the corrections officers at risk. Not at all. Not at all. Numbers don't lie. Our incident rate is a lot lower and true than it is in general population. In the general population, violence is common. Yellow uniforms ID dangerous convicts. Warden Urfi says in the two years of true, there hasn't been a single fistfight or assault on staff. I don't know how, I don't know why, but it's working. Lieutenant Daniel Quinn was brought up using the old-school approach. Now he finds himself defending the true way. So what were you hearing from your fellow officers who, who were not in this unit? We're here to wipe their noses 
Cookies and milk, that's when I heard Cookies and milk. Lieutenant Ashley McCarthy told us in her nine years in corrections, she's never experienced anything like this. You don't have to put on the face of strength 100% of the time because that's what you have to do in general population. You can't show a weakness or a deficiency. And here? It's more human. That's what it is. It's kind of like going into la-la land from general population, but um, they quickly see that everybody is here to help. What about punishment? You've got guys in here who've committed terrible crimes. Their punishment is their incarceration. It's not our job as correctional professionals to punish somebody even more while they're incarcerated. (laughs) True aims to recast young lives with incentives. Repeated bad behavior like profanity and bad attitude has gotten 12 shipped back to the general population. Good behavior earns benefits, like longer family visits, movies, classes, a prison job. When Shy Quinn Dix ended up here in True, he thought, this can't be real. I thought it was some BS because of just the stuff they were saying. I never even heard of it before. Like what? Like the correction officers and staff here care about you. Um, you get a second chance at life if you take it serious. You thought all that was BS? Yeah, definitely. Until corrections officer James Vassar took an interest in him. Impressed by Shaquin Dick's talent and repentance, Officer Vassar said he'd help him pursue his dream of playing basketball in college. Did you believe him? No, not at the time. I didn't believe him. No. What'd you see in him? I seen a kid with talent that made a mistake. For months, Vassar called college coaches around the country. Slowly, Dix started to believe. We still needed to get acceptance into the college. We still needed a judge to approve a sentence modification. So there are all these other... Steps. But they're long shots, and boy, we were hitting them. (laughs) Shy Quinn Dix could see a way out. Festum Shichiryu was lost. At 22, he was sentenced to 13 years in Cheshire for robbing convenience stores and a bank. He told us he was selfish and violent. What's that like, being thrown into the general population in a maximum security prison? It's really scary at first. So you put on a front and you act like you're tough and I'm hoping people don't see how scared I am and just the mess that's going on inside. 22 hours a day in the cell. Yes, just waiting to be let out, like a caged animal. When Warden Urfi selected him for the true unit, Shichiryu didn't care about improving himself. He just wanted out of his cell, but immediately found himself in a different world. You have to go with some type of empathy. You have to care. Central to the program is intensive counseling. Through peer and self-criticism, prisoners are forced to face the demons and behavior that put them behind bars. How were you raised? Did you have love? Did you know love? Did you know compassion? Because I didn't even know my mother. The warden told us today there's a lot of crying that goes on up here. (laughs) Is that true? Uh, I would have to agree with that. What has made you cry? My family. The problem with awareness and understanding the pain you've caused people is that you realize how much pain you've caused the people that love you. And once you have to face that and look at yourself in the mirror, that's tough. 
To prepare the prisoners for life outside Cheshire's walls, Warden Urfi tapped some unlikely helpers, respected older prisoners serving life sentences. They're now trained to serve as mentors for the young men in true. Ishkar Howard was one of the first to sign on. Why? All, all we knew was we was going to try and stop these young cats from becoming us, because you don't want this. Ishkar Howard shot and killed two men in a fight over drug turf in New Haven. In prison, he assaulted inmates and staff and spent a total of five and a half years in solitary confinement before deciding to take a different path. If there's one thing I'm an expert in, it's screwing up. I have a PhD in consequences. I can tell you what tear gas tastes like. I can tell you what it feels like to watch your family see you get sentenced to life without parole. And I can tell you the decisions I made to get to that. After that, the choice is yours. Howard and 20 other lifers are like attentive fathers. They enforce unit rules. During your last evaluation, it's recommended that you work on your attitude. Working with staff, they constantly monitor the young offender's behavior and assess their progress at regular feedback sessions. I always try to encourage you to speak a little more because you have a lot of wisdom to give to your peers. Many people outside of prison would think that someone who is in for life wouldn't necessarily be the kind of person you'd expect or want to be teaching you life lessons. So what have they done to help you? They've helped me learn how to speak in a way that I can articulate my thoughts and emotions instead of just getting mad and wanting to hit something. Shichiryu told us he has grown under their guidance. He's earned the right to go to work every day in the prison shop. He now enjoys warm visits with his family. I feel like everybody has a basic human decency. It's just that it has to be nurtured to, to, to bring it out. And that's what happens to you in this program. If you let it. If you let it. The greatest gift is when they telling me to my face that I'm not changing. And then five months later, being on their best behavior. You're in here for life. All right. You could just sit there and say, to heck with all this. So what are you getting out of this? Redemption. I don't have to die a waste. I tell these guys all the time, they give me purpose to live. They give me something to leave behind. For more than a hundred years, The Rock has been a hard place. The true unit hopes to prove a softer touch can yield better results. <laughs> Officer James Vassar convinced Coach Dan Kane at Presque Isle to take a shot on a prison inmate. Okay, Shy, cut to the basket. Now, Shy Quinn Dix is a big man on campus and the pride of the true unit. His jersey hangs on the wall. A month after leaving, he was back at Cheshire. Not as a repeat offender, but an inspiration. Trying not to cry. Y'all know me. I'm ready to cry, man. Man, I'm so happy to see y'all, man. Real talk, man. I think about all of y'all every day, yo. I swear to God I do, man. Keep your grades up. Stay out of here. Right? Yeah, definitely. All right, and don't forget us when you get in the NBA. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.